do you do with a guilty conscience? What do you do with persistent feelings of shame? What do you do with your own mistakes? What do you do when you've mistreated somebody? What do you do when you know that you've done something awful to someone? What do you do with your destructive habits? What do you do when you know that you've ruined something precious? What do you do when you've corrupted your mind, your body, and your heart? What do you do when you look within your own heart and see only darkness? We all have to live our lives asking questions like these every once in a while. We all have to live our lives knowing that we are, in so many ways, imperfect. And indeed, we have to live our lives knowing that we can't make ourselves perfect. We have to live our lives knowing that we failed, knowing that we've not done the right thing, knowing that we've done the wrong thing. We have to live our lives knowing that we've done wrong by others. We have to live our lives knowing that what we do often has a negative impact on ourselves and others. All of human life is informed by the fact that we are not what we should be and that we cannot become what we should be by our own power. It's a bleak reality, but it's nevertheless the reality. In recent decades, or perhaps one has to say in recent centuries, Western people living in this Western world of ours have tried to overcome their feelings of guilt, shame, moral ineptitude, and wickedness by getting rid of religion. The logic behind this effort goes like this. Guilt and shame are not natural to human beings. Rather, they are taught, imposed, and enforced by religious figures and institutions. Therefore, if we manage to get rid of religion with its categories, then we will soon get rid of guilt and shame, and people will then be free. That's a sort of logic. Get rid of religion, and then you get rid of guilt and shame. The idea, this idea, and its logic were forwarded by philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche, but they've been popularized by songs like Imagine by John Lennon, the one-time Beatle. The first two verses go like this. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Now, it sounded better when he said it. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to be said the way I said it. And you know, in one sense, Lenin's ideas are noble. He wanted people to enjoy their lives. He wanted people to have peace in their time. The problem is that these ideas, the ideas of Nietzsche and the ideas of Lenin and so many others, uh, don't translate well into reality. They don't work when the rubber hits the road. One can get rid of religion, one can get rid of ritual, morals, institutions, the buildings, the officials, uh, and so on. One can even get rid of the idea of God, but one is nevertheless left with the strange but unignorable persistence of guilt and shame. One is left with the persistent sense that we have done what we should not have done and failed to do what we should have done. One is left knowing that we are not what we should be and that we cannot make ourselves what we should be. In his insightful article, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, Dr. Wilfred McClay shows us that Sigmund Freud was closer to the point than Nietzsche or Lenin. 
Freud, the famous psychologist of the past century, said that guilt is the most important problem in the development of civilization. Sigmund Freud was an atheist. Sigmund Freud was a psychologist. And the thing he had to deal with the most in his psychological practice was guilt. He also said that the price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of the sense of guilt. In short, Freud saw that guilt was going nowhere soon, and that, in fact, guilt would only increase as Western civilization advanced. It's hard to explain why civilizational advance and increased guilt go hand in hand, but one has to admit that Freud was something of a prophet. Freud saw from afar the coming dominance of psychology and psychotherapy. Freud saw from afar what many now call our therapeutic age with its attempts to provide medical solutions to the persistent existence of guilt. Freud saw that doing away with religion would not, in fact, solve the problem at all. And so the point is simply this, dear friends. The bad stuff of our lives, guilt, shame, wickedness, cruelty, failure, and so on, is not going to disappear. It's not something that we will grow out of as a civilization. The bad stuff of life will continue to ruin our lives. So the question that we are left with is this, what do we do? What do we do with the bad stuff in our lives? It's obviously undesirable, and so what do we do with it? Well, here's the good news. The God who created you, the God who created the universe, is also the God who is eager to redeem you from what I'm calling the bad stuff of life. The Bible would call this stuff sin. God has revealed by his action through his prophets, through his apostles, and primarily through his son, Jesus Christ, that he is eager to lift from off of your shoulders the, bo- uh, the burden of guilt and shame, thereby setting you free to live lives of love, joy, and peace. The Bible uses all sorts of metaphors to express this glorious reality. God is eager to wash you clean from that which dirties you. God is eager to lift the burden from off of your shoulders. God is eager to shine light into your darkness. God is eager to remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. God is eager to set you free from your slavery. He is eager to break your chains and release you from prison. In short, God is eager to forgive you and thereby set you free. One of the reasons why so many people have wanted to become Christians over these past 2,000 years is because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has shown us that he is merciful, gracious, and eager to help us deal effectively with the bad stuff of our lives. Because of who God is, Christians throughout the millennia have been empowered to offer God's freedom and forgiveness to those around them. And thus so many have wanted to know this God and live in fellowship with this God, this merciful God, who's eager to forgive. We Christians proclaim the good news of forgiven sin, and this is very good news indeed. Today we're looking at Psalm 51, which is a prayer and it's a song written by King David, the great king of Israel. It's a prayer in which King David is seeking the Lord's forgiveness for some horrible sins that he had committed. And what is so wonderful about this psalm is it shows us the proper dynamic between a sinful human being and a merciful God. In this psalm, King David shows us how to bring our sinfulness before the God of great mercy and steadfast love. 
But before we dive into the psalm, I just wanted to give us all a little bit of context. What's the, the story behind this psalm? The little prescript that comes before verse 1 of this psalm tells us that King David wrote this psalm after the prophet Nathan had confronted him about his sins against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Some of you may know the story, but I'll give you a brief overview. David was at home. He was at home in the king's house when he should have been away at war. He had sent Joab, the commander of his army, and his servants to war, but he himself had not gone. He was lounging around at home. One day, while he was wandering around his house, David saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba, and she was married to Uriah, who was one of David's mighty men, which is to say one of David's most loyal and committed warriors. However, King David's lust, King David's lust was stronger than his virtue, so he laid with Bathsheba, and she conceived a child. Recognizing the mistake he had made, David did not try to fix things. Well, he tried to fix things, but in a bad way. He knew that he had to get rid of Uriah. So David called Uriah back from the war, only to have Uriah prove that he was actually a really faithful and honorable soldier. Right? He wouldn't sleep in his own bed, but instead he slept at the door of the king, because he felt he had to protect the king. As such, David played the coward and sent Uriah back to battle with orders given to Joab, the commander of the army, to put Uriah in a vulnerable battle position and then to abandon Uriah in the midst of the battle. And according to plan, Uriah was killed and we're told that God was very displeased. God sent the prophet Nathan to King David to pronounce judgment, displeasure, and a curse. The story is, in a word, tragic. David, the king of Israel, the man who should have been the great moral example for the people, David violated a woman and killed her husband. And so one of the key takeaways from this text is simply this. David was a bad man, and he was a guilty man. He was a sinful man. He acted shamefully and deserved to be punished. The Bible has what you might call heroes, and King David is one of these heroes. But the Bible is always very careful to show that all heroes except for Jesus, are sinful. All heroes have their fatal flaws, and King David was no different. The Bible always shows us that these heroes need forgiveness, healing, washing, and redemption like the rest of us. And so in Psalm 51, we find David seeking this forgiveness, healing, washing, and redemption. For us, all these years later, Psalm 51 gives us a profound picture of what it looks like to repent of our sins and turn to the Lord. Psalm 51 shows us how we can make the bad stuff of our lives, how we can take the bad stuff of our lives and lay it before the Lord. Looking at the psalm, we see first and foremost that David takes his sin to God confident in the Lord's mercy and love. David's confident. He knows that God is merciful and loving. David does not refer to his own abilities to atone for his sin. David doesn't promise To make it better, David doesn't make excuses for his sin. Rather, David simply throws himself completely and totally upon the mercy of God. He says, God, I know I've sinned, and the only way out of this is for you to be merciful and loving towards me. You know, the whole message of Christianity, the whole Christian life, is completely and totally dependent upon the mercy of God. We could not pray as we do, we could not worship as we do, We could not hope as we do. We could not confess as we do. We could not love as we do if it were not for the mercy of God. 
The whole system, the whole system of Christian doctrine would totally and completely fall apart if God were not merciful. But God is merciful. That's the good news. And so David prays. David goes before the Lord because he's confident. He knows that God is merciful. He's confident in the character of God. David also brought his sin before the Lord because he recognized that his sin was an offense against God. Right? The sin that he committed, yes, was a sin against Bathsheba. Yes, it was a sin against Uriah. And it was a sin against others as well. But it was first and foremost a sin against God. It was an offense to God. In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. All sin is a breaking of God's law. All sin is rebellion against God. David understood this, and so he directs his uh, plea for forgiveness towards God. If we want to deal with the bad stuff in our life, then we must be sure that we bring it to the Lord. He's the one to bring it to. He's the merciful one who will treat us according to his mercy and love. But also, he's the victim of our sin. We sin against him every time that we sin. Now, when we come before the Lord, it's important that we ask the Lord to take our sin away, to take the bad stuff of our life away. David is not primarily praying for the strength to do better. Rather, David is praying that God would wash him, clean him, purge him, forgive him, and blot out his sins. Going to God is not like going to your strong friend and getting him to help you lift something heavy. Rather, going to God with your sin is like going to a surgeon so that he can remove a massive cancerous tumor from within your abdomen. When you go to a surgeon, you don't expect to help that surgeon with the surgery, right? You expect him to put you under and for him to do the work himself. And that's how David is approaching the Lord. David's going before God and simply saying, get rid of it. Totally take it away. Get rid of the sin in my life. Wash it away. Purge me from it. Totally get rid of it. When we bring our sin before God, we don't come just needing a little bit of help, but we come with a much humbler frame of mind. We say, I've made a mess and I need you to clean it up. I've gotten myself lost. I don't know, my, don't know my way home. And the only way I'll get home is if you help me. I've broken everything and I need you to fix it. David is asking for the Lord to do everything because he knows that he can do nothing. And you know, the remarkable thing, and this is just lovely, but the remarkable thing about God is that he loves it when we ask him for help. Those of you who have kids know about this kind of love and joy. You want your kids to ask you for help when they're in a bad situation. So it is with God. He loves it when we ask him to fix our broken lives. There was a beautiful Christian man. He's now died and gone to heaven. His name was uh, Festo Kivengere, who was an Anglican bishop in Uganda a few decades ago. It's a hard word to roll off the tongue for me. I'm sure it's easy for a Ugandan. And the thing about Bishop Cavendere uh, was that he was a great storyteller. And he loved to tell a story about a little girl and her mother who were working in the kitchen one day. And the little girl, while mom was making bread, said, Mom, what does God do all day? What does God do all day? And that's a hard question to answer. And so mom took a while to think. And eventually mom said, he fixes broken things. 
That's what God does all day. He fixes broken things. God will not despise you if you come to him with your broken heart and your broken life. God will not despise you if you come to him burdened with guilt and shame. God will not despise you if you come to him stained with sin. He will say to you, my precious daughter, my precious son, I'm so glad you brought this to me. I forgive you. Let me fix it. Now I also want you to see that David asks for a new heart. When he goes to God, asking God to fix his life, asking God to forgive him, David also asks for a new heart. David prays in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. King David is asking God to repair, to renew, to renovate, revitalize his internal reality. David understood that all sin is conceived within the heart, and so if he's going to be healed, then his heart needs to be renewed. With a new heart comes new desires, new loves, new aversions, new aspirations, and new hopes. David wanted all of this. He wanted the Holy Spirit to fill his heart and make him new so that he could pursue the good things of God. And so repentance is not just about saying you're sorry. Repentance is also about getting a new heart. Right? Repentance is something that we don't do it by ourselves, but we do it with God. And as we repent, we're constantly asking God, make my heart new. Do that important heart work within me. This is true at the beginning of our Christian lives when we're born again and God gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, but it's also true throughout our entire Christian lives. We always need God to be renewing our hearts. We always need God to be doing heart work. Now we also see in this psalm that David asked the Lord for a renewal of vocation. And vocation is just a fancy word for calling. David knew that he was made to worship the Lord and praise the Lord. So he asks, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David knows that he was meant to enjoy the Lord and enjoy the joy of the Lord. So he prays, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wanted to return to his vocation as a joyful worshiper of God. Right When David sinned, he recognized that he wasn't fulfilling the calling that God had given him. And he was living his life in a way that was not meant for him. And so when King David comes before the Lord penitent, he says, renew the joy which I once had. Give me again the joy of my salvation so that I can be a joyful worshiper of you. Now, what I find most striking in this psalm is the verse, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Just think about that for a moment. David had just violated a woman. David had just gotten her husband killed. And here he is before the Lord saying, if you forgive me and wash me and renew me, then I'll become a great moral teacher and lead sinners back to you. That's audacious. Right? He's a sinful man. He's a bad man. He's a guilty man. And he's coming before the Lord and says, if you make me new, I'll become a great moral teacher. We almost imagine God to say, no way. <laughs> You've ruined that option in your life. But such is the insanity of God's grace. 
that he looks at sinful David and renews him, renews his heart, and enables him uh, to do this great work. David's confidence was in the mercy of God, which is why he was willing to ask for something so audacious. And that's, in a sense, the main thing I want us to see as we look at this psalm. It's David's boldness. It's almost brazen. But here's the thing about the merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He's not reluctantly merciful. Rather, God is eagerly merciful, and he's perfectly merciful. We don't need to hedge our bets when it comes to God's mercy. Rather, God loves it when we come to him and throw ourselves totally upon his mercy and grace. Now, if you doubt this, if you doubt that God wants to forgive you, if you doubt that God wants to renew your life, restore you back to your vocation, draw you back to himself, then my advice is simply this. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Think upon Jesus, both God and man, hanging upon the cross for your sins. When we look to the cross, we see that God is literally dying to show you his mercy. He's dying to forgive you. He's dying to relieve your burden, dying to set you free, dying to wash you, dying to give you the joy of salvation. That's where you look. You say, God, will you forgive a sinner like me? You look at the cross and the answer is, of course, I'm dying to forgive you. I want to. It's the joy of my heart to forgive people like you. Just lovely. Yeah. You know, when I think of the collect that we pray on Ash Wednesday, Almighty God, You hate nothing that you have made. I think of my professor, uh, and he loved that prayer. And he would talk about that prayer with tears in his eyes, and he says, it reminds you that God doesn't hate you. God doesn't hate you. He loves you, wants to forgive you, wants you to draw, wants to draw you to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, don't hold back. Bring all the bad stuff of life, bring all your sin, and give it to God. Give it to God in the name of Jesus Christ. And ask him to take it away. Ask him to give you a new heart. Ask him to renew the joy of salvation in your life. And to help you be a joyful worshiper of him. In a moment, you can come forward and have your forehead marked with ashes. In the Bible, ashes are a symbol of mourning and grief over sin. Ashes are a symbol of what David calls a broken and a contrite heart. They are also a symbol of our mortality. These ashes remind us that we will die. They remind us of the curse that we bear as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Right? I'll say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, which are the words that God spoke to Adam after he and his wife had fallen from the garden. David says in verse 6, Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being. And so we mark our head with ashes as a way of saying, Lord, we're broken, we're contrite, And we're dying. And so have mercy on us. And when you do have mercy, then we'll be free. This is not some sort of dark or morbid exercise. Rather, it's a way of recognizing that true grief over sin leads to true joy and freedom and forgiveness. True grief over sin leads to true joy and freedom of forgiveness. Because God is merciful. And he loves it when we bring our broken lives to him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, 
What can we say other than that we're grateful for your mercy? Grateful for your kindness towards us and your son Jesus. Grateful for the freedom of forgiven sin. Help us to experience that great joy. Help us to grieve our sins worthily. Not so that we can get stuck in a rut, but so that we can feel the thrill of knowing that we're forgiven. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.